Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization, and various other critical global matters envelope the world as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy, and international security in shaping India's future. My name is Kunak Bhandari, and I'll be hosting this episode of Interpreting India. In this episode, we will be looking at the ISET, or the Initiative on Critical and Emerging Technologies. The ISET was launched during the sidelines of the Quad Summit in Tokyo during May 2022. Both President Biden and PM Modi welcomed the launch of a U.S.-India Initiative on Critical and Emerging Technologies, which was to be spearheaded by the National Security Councils of the two countries, mostly to expand partnership in critical and emerging technologies. To give us insight into these issues around the ISET and much more, I'm delighted to be speaking with Ambassador Arun Singh. Ambassador Singh is a non-resident senior fellow at Carnegie India. He has extensive experience across the globe, including as India's former ambassador to the US, Israel, and France. Throughout his distinguished career in the Indian Foreign Service, spanning 37 years, he has served during pivotal periods in key global capitals and was instrumental in shaping India's policies, notably the continued progress in the US-India relationship, India's closer ties to Israel, and the formulation and implementation of India's policies related to Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran, including in the period following 9-11. Ambassador Singh, it's a pleasure to have you on board. Welcome to Interpreting India. Yes. Thank you, Kodark. Happy to be with you. So my first question uh, stems from a common issue brought up with the ISET. There is still a perception among some quarters that the ISET is a deal. This is, of course, a reference to the landmark India-U.S. civilian nuclear deal. However, is the ISET more than just a deal? Uh, thank you, Kunark. It's, a, it's an interesting question. And uh, it's interesting that you're trying to compare the ISET uh, to the landmark civil nuclear cooperation agreement. And that is really a question that is arising in public perception these days. Because many have pointed out that ISET should be seen as the next big thing in India-U.S. relations after the civil nuclear cooperation agreement that had been done in 2008. Now, from my perspective, both are deals, but of a completely different kind. And both are more than deals, because they also went on to work out a framework within which the India-US relationship could be advanced further. Now, if you look at the Civil Nuclear Cooperation Agreement, it was a signed agreement. The two governments had to sign the agreement, especially the one, two, three agreement, giving the framework for cooperation between India and U.S. in civil nuclear technology. That agreement had to be approved also by the U.S. Congress. And of course, there's a ratification process uh, in India. But not just the U.S. Congress. The U.S. also uh, had to work with India to get concurrence of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. Because within the agreement, there was provision for a certain number of India's nuclear facilities to be open for inspection by the IAEA. So the IAEA had to agree with that. But even more, the nuclear suppliers group, which had the group that had been set up at the initiative of the US many, many years ago to control civil nuclear technology and supplies to countries that were not part of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, members of that group had to agree 
that a new agreement could be done with India. And even though India had not signed on to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, India would now be eligible for getting civil nuclear uh, supplies and technology. So this was something uh, that was completely new. And it's interesting that initially, the US had started up setting up processes, including the Nuclear Suppliers Group, with India in mind, to deny technologies to India. And now US was leading the world to make an exception just for India from the framework that had been set up to target India. So this was a very major uh, sort of step that the US had taken. So to that extent, clearly, the nuclear suppliers agreement was a deal. It was an agreement that needed approval of US Congress, international organizations such as IAEA and NSG. But it became more than that. Because subsequently, despite this agreement, U.S. companies have not been able to sell civil nuclear equipment and technologies to India or partner with India uh, in terms of any nuclear power plants. And the reason for that has been some challenges in the U.S. in terms of viability of companies that were producing such technology or the prices at which they are able to supply. And on India, uh, we, we had done a nuclear liability law, which many companies felt was too onerous and they were not able to work in that framework. Whatever be the reason, uh, although we are making some progress in our discussions with France, with Russia, related to supply of uh, civil nuclear technologies and uh, participating in power plants, and we are getting uh, you know, uranium and other things from other countries like Kazakhstan, which would not have been possible without the exception or exemption that was done through the NSG, US has not been able to do any such supplies. But despite that, what the Civil Nuclear Cooperation Agreement did was it enabled higher level technology releases from the US. So in other areas, in terms of dual use technologies, civilian technologies, in terms of defense technologies, the U.S. was now able to release higher level technologies for India. So in all those areas, cooperation has progressed. Uh, today, India, U.S. is India's largest trading partner, trade at $191 billion. Trade has increased more than 10 times in the last 20 years. Till 2008, when the Civil Nuclear Cooperation Agreement was done, we had hardly bought any defense supplies from the U.S. Today, we have contracted to buy more than $20 billion worth of defense supplies from the U.S. And the two countries are talking of our defense technology uh, partnership. In 2016, the U.S. declared India a major defense partner. In 2018, the U.S. placed India at strategic trade authorization level one which they say is the same level as the closest allies and partners of the U.S., including NATO partners. So what that agreement did was that even though nuclear supplies haven't happened from the U.S., it enabled higher level technology partnership between the two countries. So it became a framework. Similarly, what ICET, the Initiative on Critical and Emerging Technologies, is doing, it was launched, as you mentioned, uh, by the President and the Prime Minister in May last year. And then in January this year, the two national security advisors met in Washington and gave the message that they believed that for their national security interests and considerations, the two countries should now partner in critical and emerging technologies. And they identified many, artificial intelligence, quantum, cyber, 6G, biotech, commercialization space, defense, semiconductors, and a whole host of these technologies. And you've been working on technologies, and you know that many people say 
that there is a perfect storm of technology coming and that these new technologies are going to completely transform the way we live, the way we work. In all these technologies, there is very little work that has started in most countries and they're looking at advancing, they're trying to see how it, partnerships could be of interest to them. So the ICET launch in May and then January this year, there was no signed agreement. And you didn't have to take approval of US Congress or the Indian Parliament. You didn't have to take the approval of any international organization. It's a bilateral agreement uh, between the two countries where it is creating a framework for participation in high-level technologies. Now, after the ICET uh, meeting in January, for example, in the White House statement that was put out, there was a specific reference that the US would now work to expedite consideration of the proposal from GE for transferring jet engine technology to India. Now, reports coming out now suggest that that is advancing very well. and We have to see how that might progress. And in all the other areas, from what I understand, there are bilateral mechanisms that have been set up, which are working, which are discussing to advance the process. And the final um, element that I want to draw your attention to is that on 5th and 6th of, January, of June this year, just a few days ago, the Indian Foreign Secretary was in Washington for a meeting of something that has been set up called the Strategic Trade Dialogue. This is something new, a new structure that has been created to look at technology releases in the context of this initiative on critical and emerging technologies. So there, the Indian and US officials in that framework will discuss what are any kind of roadblocks that are coming in the way and how those could be removed. So I think that's why I say that both of them are deals, though of a different kind, and both have created frameworks for advancing cooperation across a range of sectors. Thank you for that comprehensive answer, sir. I think it's a very good comparative assessment of what the deal was about, the Indo-US nuclear deal, and what the ISIT really is all about. Uh, you mentioned something about the US-India nuclear deal not leading to any American companies eventually being able to sell their reactors to India. Which brings me to my next question, which is that prior collaboration between India and U.S. governments was mostly government-to-government -government led. And this was certainly the case with frameworks such as the DTTI, which is the Defense Technology and Trade Initiative, aimed at co-production and co-development of defense equipment. So do you think, sir, that the inclusion of private sector entities as stakeholders in the ISID is going to lead to a different result this time? So when dealing with the U.S., we have to keep in mind that while the U.S. government has regulatory control and then is responsible for authorizing transfers of high levels of technologies or critical technologies, in most cases, the technology is held in the private sector. So for any collaboration to happen, uh, both stakeholders must agree. The U.S. must agree that from its national security perspective, it is comfortable of that kind of technology being partnered with another country. And the private sector concerned has to feel that it is in their commercial interest uh, to get into that kind of partnership. So I think when, we, when the two governments had done the Defense Trade and Technology Initiative in 2014, there, from my perspective, Part of the problem was that this was the first time they were getting into that level of discussion and exploring that kind of partnership. They didn't have a habit of working with each other in those areas. So there was a lot of learning uh, to be done. Uh, so this, so that was certainly one obstacle. And I also think on the Indian side, uh, 
perhaps there was not adequate understanding uh, of the complexity of the us system in this area and our expectations in terms of what level of technology could be transferred were higher than what the us has done even with its closest partners and so that was not going to happen you know recently for example i just want to mention that there was a report of a us company being sanctioned by the us government for supplying in violation of us regulations itar you know the international trade in arms regulations to germany which is a nato ally of the us so there are restrictions related to different countries so i think th- that there was a learning process so although certainly there were governments involved there was a private sector involved uh, there needed to be far more conversation so i think what is happening now in the iset process very deliberately right from the start both governments have involved the private sector and academia uh for example when the meeting was held of the two national security advisers in washington on 31st january a day before that on 30th january a meeting had been convened through the us chamber of commerce there where uh, private sector and academia representatives from both sides were invited to that meeting and they had an interaction in the presence of the us and indian national security advisor and the us commerce secretary so there was a government industry interface and from what i understand uh, the us national security advisor uh, will be coming to india on 13th and 14th june uh, for interaction with the indian national security advisors to assess how far the iset process has moved and what more could be done to advance cooperation in this framework and again as i understand one day before their official meeting they will be convening a meeting uh, with representatives of business and academia on both sides so clearly there is a sense that to advance this uh, the academic community has to be involved businesses have to be involved but the important message is that the national security establishments of both the countries are signaling to them that we support such cooperation that we believe it is in our national security interest to pursue such cooperation and it's an important message at a time when the us is blocking such cooperation for example uh, with china and therefore businesses and academia would like to be assured that in case they pursue with india they are not going to run into obstacles at a later stage thank you sir uh, you mentioned the itar which is something which most of our listeners may not be familiar with essentially the international traffic and arms regulations regulates the uh, export of highly sensitive technology outside the us and you mentioned that even if it is to friendly nations it may be a problem if it is actually subject to the itar rules and not permitted to be transfer, uh, transferred which brings me to my next question sir uh, there's a fine balance which has to be struck in export controls when it comes to sort of ensuring that key technologies remain within national borders and at the same time enabling your commercial entities to make the sales which they need to make uh this brings into issue the larger issue of export controls as well uh given that the pm strip is happening at a time when there's talk about the ge engine deal happening and there has been a lot of discussion on export controls possibly being resolved between india and the us this is likely to be a major issue down the line uh but given the congressional oversight in the us over most matters pertaining to the us export control laws should india strive to secure in the long term or in the medium term an aukus like carve out for itself when it comes to such export control measures assessing the situation right now i believe that a specific carve out for india may be difficult uh, because uh, you know the us india relationship has become strong 
but still in a sense it is an early stage that a new phase in this relationship really started in 2000 and there's a lot more confidence uh, that both sides need to develop in working together especially in higher levels of technology uh, you may recall for example in 2004 when india and us had declared uh, next steps in strategic partnership Uh, which was the first time exploring potential for cooperation in high technology areas where they had spoken about partnership in uh, civil nuclear cooperation in space and generally in high technology areas and after that they had set up something called the high technology cooperation group between the US and India and that group was mandated to look at the cooperation requests that are running into regulatory roadblocks and see how they could be resolved and over time it worked quite well uh, the the kind of uh, requests that were be, uh, being blocked became less and less now what has happened with the launch of the initiative on critical and emerging technologies there is a sense that we are now looking at much higher levels of technology partnership and even a structure like the high technology cooperation group the htcg uh, was now overtaken uh, by developments so that's why they have set up a new group called the strategic trade dialogue which i just held this first meeting and the purpose of that group is to address any regulatory roadblocks that cooperation proposals are running into and i believe a far better way would be for this group to meet as often as possible try and resolve issues and over time build a precedent set of precedents of cooperation proposals that have been cleared for partnership and i think that would be a much better way uh, of advancing uh, cooperation across a wider range of sectors yes sir i think i am totally in agreement that the strategic trade dialogue group needs to meet as often and as frequently as possible and this certainly speaks to the high level high, the high levels of partnership which both countries are striving to achieve this is certainly evident from the recent visits you have spoken about over the last couple of months from high level officials to both the countries both countries officials going to each other uh, but given so that there's a frenzy of activity now taking place especially since january of this year uh you know is there a sort of a pressure on both sides to to deliver on something given pm modi's trip to the us or is there likely to be a pushback on that or is that likely to be delayed further what is the overall sentiment uh when it comes to delivering something now it's been more than a year now sir yeah no so it is uh, good to have pressure uh for deliverables in my own uh, experience and working as a diplomat for several decades uh the sense uh, i get is that different countries certainly through a normal process do advance cooperation but whenever there is a high level visit like that of a prime minister or a president both systems come under a lot of pressure to generate outcomes that uh, that would make the visits even more productive and that's a time when different parts of the system come together to work out coordinated results and coordinated delivery so they are very useful so i think there will certainly be a lot of pressure to come out with specific deliverables in the context of prime minister's visit um because this the uh, first visit at that level happening after the launch of the iset and the very fact that the us national security advisor is coming to india a week before prime minister's visit again is a signal that they attach importance to this process and they want to uh, re- lead to concrete outcomes in the context of prime minister's visit but more than that uh, as you've seen from the reports about the prime minister's visit 
he's not been invited just for a normal visit. He's been invited for a state visit. Now, that level of protocol for a visit, the U.S. It does not do very often. Uh, normally one or two a year. In fact, in the Biden administration, in the two and a half years of the Biden administration, the Indian prime minister would only be the third visitor at the state level. Before that was the French president in December last year. And then in April this year, the South Korean president and no one else. Not only that, the Indian prime minister has also been invited to address a joint session of Congress. That is also a signal of the bipartisan support in the U.S. among Democrats and Republicans for the India relationship. But what is also significant is that he has now been invited to address a joint session of the Congress for the second time. He had done that earlier in 2016. And very few world leaders historically uh, have been invited to address the Congress uh, more than once. Now, Winston Churchill did that, Nelson Mandela did that, a couple of Israeli prime ministers did that. So again, I think this is a signal of where the India-US relationship has reached, the bipartisan support in the US for the relationship, and the growing strength in the US of the Indian origin diaspora, uh, which the members of Congress uh, relate to for their own funding, for their own uh, votes that they are looking at. So given all that, and given this nature of the visit, there will certainly be a lot of pressure on both systems to come out with very specific deliverables for the visit. And from the reports that I see, uh, that is likely to happen. Uh, so given the nature of the visit and given that, as you mentioned, you know, it certainly hits on the right notes. It's sort of a very special visit, given that this is only the, the third state visit hosted by the Biden administration in its tenure. Um, if there indeed are any big ticket deals which are going to be materialized during this time. Uh, would that put the ball, so to speak, back in the court of India to deliver on something as well? Could the, could the deal, say that the GE engine deal, raise expectations on the US side that India will also probably deliver something equally tangible down the line, if not in the, in the, in the next few months? Well, you know, uh, anytime there is a deal, both sides benefit. You know, if there is a GE deal, of course, India India benefits in terms of access to certain level of technology. Uh, but GE and the U.S. also benefit because they are supplying it not free. They're supplying it at a cost and they will get involved in uh, production in India, uh, which will uh, widen market opportunities for them. So I think in any deal itself, uh, they both are to benefit. But more than that, uh, Kunark, uh, the sense I get is that, um, as you know, the U.S. has said repeatedly, that they see today China as their main economic, technological, and military challenge. They say that China is the only country in the world with the intent and the capability to try and replace the U.S. in the international system. The Chinese themselves are showing a lot of progress in the critical and emerging technologies. And the U.S. understands that if they want to remain competitive vis-a-vis -vis China in these areas, China, a country of size of 1.4 billion people, then they need partnership with a country like India, which brings a certain amount of human capital, skilled human capital to the table in these uh, technologies. So the partnership with India in critical and emerging technologies is, of course, to India's advantage, but it is also to U.S. advantage. And that is the reason why U.S. is pursuing because, as you know, no country uh, takes any policy decision in international relations only to help another country. They do it because they see it in their interest. And I do believe that U.S. sees it in India, in their interest uh, to partner with India in these technologies. And again, uh, you know, if you go to Silicon Valley in the U.S., uh, 
you'll find that indian origin tech entrepreneurs indian origin tech workers indian origin ceos are an integral part of us uh, leadership global leadership in innovation including in digital technologies so they look at the india partnership in that uh, context so i don't think um, there is a quid pro quo in the nature that i have done this for you now what you'll do for me in everything that is done both sides benefit you mentioned that indian origin tech talent plays a very critical role in silicon valley and the general overall tech ecosystem in the us sir uh, recently there was an op-ed and an article by eric schmidt formerly google chairperson in foreign affairs where he spoke about immigration reform in the us and that has to be the next step if you are to sort of compete in the area of critical and emerging tech he also pointed out in his piece how immigration from india overall has dropped a little bit over the last few years largely because other countries have also woken up and they've also introduced very competitive immigration policies as well so if you are to address this issue of immigration re- reform overall uh and given that there's already bipartisan consensus in the US Congress in favor of India do you think would it be perhaps worth exploring an option where india should push the case for an e3 type visa which currently the us offers to australia where high tech talent is sort of given an expedited visa to come to the us would that be an option worth exploring and do you think there is any constituency to sort of uh, explore that option in the us so kudark as you know uh, the issue of overall immigration reform in the us has been very very controversial and they have attempted it for many many years and it has not made progress uh, there is a sharp divide between republicans and democrats uh, and within each party about how to proceed on this at the same time uh, there has been ability in the us system to make uh, special provisions for those who come with a stem background science and technology background and recently for example those who've got stem degrees from us universities are now permitted to work in the U- us as part of the optional practical training for 3 years after completing their degrees earlier it was just about a year year and a half so i think there should certainly be an ability in the us system to make a carve out for any mobility required in the context of a partnership on critical and emerging technologies and um, that, that may be one way to deal with this issue and i do believe there could be some receptivity in that uh, because you know the mobility works for both you know if a certain number of indians are able to go to the us work there pick up experience come back to india and also uh, then set up uh, entities here uh to build up capacity in india also to build up trade or technology partnership between india and the us i think both countries will stand to benefit from that i think we spoke earlier about uh, the wide area of stakeholders involved with the iset and uh, you know that's a good thing that's good because it's good to have other people also give their views on how they perceive uh, the iset to be progressing however given the multitude of actors involved in the iset Uh, is it a possibility that perhaps arriving at a consensus in different areas be it space semiconductors export controls be it defense tech innovation uh, would it be harder to arrive at a consensus when it comes to what the future course of action may be given that there are more people not to sort of uh, have an agreement with no i think kunal there is already a consensus to advance uh cooperation with india in these areas uh, if you see the repeated statements coming out from the us side uh, they say that they see uh, the rise of india to be in us interest 
they say they see uh, India to be a net security provider uh, in the region. Uh, that um, you know that there is a convergence of interest between India and the U.S. So there is a broad convergence in the U.S. system to advance cooperation uh, uh, with India in these areas, and there is a similar convergence also uh, within India. But I think uh, now specific cooperation proposals would need to be tested. Now, if the G proposal goes through, that will be a big signal because that level of technology has so far not been transferred by the U.S. to India. And if it goes through, it gives a signal that, okay, the U.S. is now ready for higher levels. You may have noticed, for example, the Indian Minister for Electronics and Information Technology was in the U.S. in May. Um, he was on the East Coast, West Coast, talking to U.S. companies, talking about cooperation in semiconductors. Now, if something happens, for example, in terms of a partnership in semiconductors, uh, with U.S. looking at investment uh, in India. Again, that will be a signal. So I think uh, the convergence is there, the consensus is there. Now, specific proposals will have to be tested as to where is the regulatory approval coming in? Where is the uh, private, uh, where is the interest and profit of the private sector? How is that playing out? And what is the assessment of their, uh, their assessment of the ecosystem in India? Uh, to enable production in those areas. Now, if all these three things come together, I think we will be able to make a significant advance. So early on in one of your answers, you spoke about how there's always a background of the competition with China, especially in critical and emerging tech, which is looming largely there. And that has been one of the driving factors for the ISET picking up steam over the last one year. There's also been at the same time this constituency in the US. And I think some people have you know, thought about the India is a good bet, is a is a is a bold bet, is a bad bet. So, if you were to make a pitch or sort of advocate on behalf of India, what would be the three key things you would sort of mention to all the stakeholders as to why the ISET is a great bet, or however you want to see it? What are the things going for the ISET? The three big things going for the ISET going ahead. Look, if you see reports now coming out, and many of the reports by U.S. entities are saying that there is a significant transformation that has happened in India over the last 10 years uh, to lay the basis of future progress, economic growth, and technological progress. That's one. Second, even now, a large number of U.S. companies are getting cutting-edge R&D uh, and technology work being done in India. And these are big U.S. companies. Uh, big names, and some employ 5,000 people in India, some are employing 8,000 people in India, doing R&D and development work. Therefore, they already find that Indian talent, scientific and technological talent, is very useful for them, for their global leadership uh, in the global context. So the base has been laid. Now it's only a question, of course, in those cases, you know, the IP rests with the, Indian, with the U.S. company. It's not IP vesting in India. Uh, so now, uh, based on all that, the question is, how do you move to a higher level uh, of partnership? So I think uh, there is already um, a base that is out there. And uh, the signal for this new partner, and China is not the only factor. I think even if we remove China, and even if there is a willingness in both sides to partner in higher levels of technology, India, with its 1.4 billion people growing at 7% or so every year, US with a you know highly developed um, society, high levels of income, both can together create tremendous new market opportunity. What the China factor has done 
is expedited the willingness in the U.S. system to release higher levels of technology for India. Uh, so that has certainly happened. For example, you spoke about Eric Schmidt and uh, around 2021, he had led a commission that had come out with a report on artificial intelligence. And there, if you saw, there are several specific references to how U.S. would benefit from a partnership with India. Uh, and uh, including the global context. So I think that's uh, to that extent, the China dimension is certainly uh, relevant, but I think there is advantage in the partnership going beyond just the China dimension. So thank you for coming on to the podcast. I guess the biggest takeaway for me from this podcast has been that we have to build a track record of progress. For instance, you give the example of DTTI eventually leading to the ISET, and I guess... If I may borrow a phrase from the Silicon Valley counterparts, it would be build it and they will come. If you show track record, track record of progress, eventually most things more, are most likely to fall into place. So with that, sir, I would like to thank you once again for coming on to the podcast. Thank you, Kunaru. I enjoyed the conversation. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also visit us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.